right and wrong, life and death. Those were the two paths put before Israel as they were about to enter the promised land from the wilderness. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the law. It's Moses's final speech in which he pleads with Israel to choose right over wrong. And this speech contains many warnings and provisions, commands and restrictions that were meant to give Israel direction onto the path that would lead them away from destruction and into life. If they obeyed, they would be blessed. They would live with God and have life. But if they disobeyed, they would be cursed. They would be exiled from the land and would die. So Moses passed on the law so Israel might know wrong from right. And while there are moments of obedience to God's commands, as we trace Israel's history through the Bible, we find that this guarantee about disobedience and exile ultimately stands. Generation after generation disregarded Deuteronomy and its demands. They ran after death, slamming the door on the God of life and his law written on stone. They forgot God and his commands and began defining right and wrong on their own. But there is good news. For even though we all broke the law written on stone, God's promise of a Moses-like prophet was not taken back or overthrown. Even though we broke God's word, God would not break his. For just as permanent as all the commands and punishments were God's promises that he would come and fix all of our brokenness. And that's who Jesus is. The prophet like Moses who upholds all of God's commandments. He perfectly held together what we could only break. He fulfilled what the law required and put it in its proper place. Jesus reversed the curse our stone hearts had earned by giving us the life he lived and taking on the death we deserved. And he does all of this to take us back to the place Israel was at first, on the border of a new and better promised land where heaven and earth will merge. Good morning, Hope. And welcome to all of you who are uh, here in the room in the worship center in West Des Moines and in overflows seating and in different campuses and locations. Uh, it's really good to be church together with all of you wherever you might be. Um, what a great year this has been already. We're reading through the whole Holy Bible in a year. And this last week we started into the book of Deuteronomy. If you're doing the Gunner track, if you're doing the Old Testament track in addition to the New Testament. The New Testament readings were just four chapters this week in the Gospel of Luke. We're reading that during the season of Lent between Ash Wednesday and Easter. 40 days of Lent is going to lead us right into then the Gospel of John and then we'll move forward from there. If you're new to Hope Today, I want to tell you there are still on-ramps available for you to get on this whole Holy Bible reading track. I would encourage you to do so. You can pick up one of these uh, bookmarks in the lobbies of whatever campus you're at on the way out. You can find all this information on our websites and social media channels from Hope as well. If you are somebody who started on the Bible track and somewhere around January 3rd you took an exit ramp... <laughs> I want to tell you that there are on-ramps available for you even now, and you can get back on too. You can always make up the stuff you miss sometime later. 
But that's the thing about the Bible. You can kind of pick it up almost anywhere and start to go. So I would encourage you to get back on that wagon. That video that you just saw is produced by a poet who summarizes really in an outstanding and artistic way using poetry, really more than prose, a very dense and somewhat complicated book called the Book of Deuteronomy. And if you've been reading it, you know. So here's the setting, just five verses into the Book of Deuteronomy. It says, in the land of Moab, nope, back, in the land of Moab, east of the Jordan River, Moses carefully explained the Lord's instructions. So on the border, the, the poet who summarizes Deuteronomy in that video said, on the border of the promised land, here are the Israelites. The people have been wandering around the wilderness from slavery in Egypt on their way to the promised life of a new life in a promised land. But that's west of the Jordan River. They're on the border. They're just east of the Jordan River. They're finally there. And Moses is the leader who's led them to this point, chosen by God to do so. It's a journey that should have taken two weeks at the most. And it's taken them 40 years to get there. And it has everything to do with what that video says. Deuteronomy is about choosing. Right or wrong, life or death, blessings or curses. This key verse in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, becomes kind of the theme verse for this book. And even in scripture, it starts to say this is the key that unlocks the door, not just to understanding Deuteronomy, but the key to a whole new life. Let's read it together if you can see it on a screen wherever you are. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. So my summary of the book of Deuteronomy would be these arrows. Look back, look up, and look forward. Look back, the first few chapters of Deuteronomy say. Look back, Moses tells the people of God, the Israelites who are on the border of this promised land. Finally, look back and remember how faithful your God has been to deliver us to this point. Look back and remember that God has been with us every step of the way. I could say the same thing standing in front of you today. Look back, Church of Hope. Look back, Christian. Look back, person who's here seeking or has questions about Christianity. He's looking into it. Look back and see what your creator has done for you, what your God has provided for you. He's given you life, and you wouldn't be here if it weren't for God giving you that life. He gives you breath. He gives you a heart that beats. He gives you the potential for community. You're sitting in the midst of it right now. Sisters and brothers in Christ, what if that wasn't just a model for Christians? What if it was a reality? What if everybody you saw sitting around you right now, you understood, this is my potential sister in life. This is my potential brother in life. That we are children all of the same Heavenly Father. We are the family of God. The Bible's not just saying this just so we can have a little pep talk and a motto and say, oh, isn't that nice? We're all symbolically sisters and brothers. No, you are potentially sisters and brothers in Christ. So find your neighborhood, find your hope group, find your ministry, find your, 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 your place where you fit in. Find the place that God has for you in this church. Find your sisters and brothers. Moses is looking out at his sisters and brothers in God's family. And he says, look back. Remember what God has done for you. And I'm saying the same thing to you today. Look back. Remember who God is so that you can remember whose you are and start to better identify who you are instead of who the world tells you or other people or sometimes yourself. Because God can be trusted. 
look up, which is these two verses, these theme verses, it's all the rest of scripture too, that says, love the Lord your God with everything you've got, heart, soul, and strength. Listen and love. Listen, Israel, on the border of the promised land. Love God with everything you've got, because Moses knows, God knows, and so he inspires Moses to say this, God knows they haven't always listened, and they haven't always loved still remember when I was a young pastor here, maybe my second or third year here. Nobody calls me young Pastor Mike anymore, but I used to be. <laughs> and a woman came in uh, to my office, and she had a really sincere uh, and important for her spiritual question. She said, I'm having a hard time believing in God. I said, oh, okay, well, why? She said, because he thinks he's all that. He's like, oh, I have to love you best. I have to love you most. You're, you're the most important thing. He's like this narcissistic kind of boyfriend I had. I said, oh, okay, let me draw a very, try to draw a very clear distinction between your narcissistic boyfriend who thinks he's all that and isn't a good boyfriend because of that and isn't a giver or, or just a taker and, and that's what he's all about. That's not what God is saying here. God is our creator God knows that if we learn to love him with everything we've got, heart, soul, strength, that it'll actually benefit us. It'll actually be a blessing for us. Look up to this God you can trust in a way you should not trust your narcissistic boyfriend. Look up. Look up for all of us today to this God who has a word for us and wants us to hear him and listen. Look up and then... That's really the heart of the book of Deuteronomy. And then the last few chapters of the book of Deuteronomy are to look forward into this promised land. Moses dies. The baton of leadership is passed to Joshua. And in a couple of weeks, we'll read about Joshua and the move across the Jordan River into the promised land. But Deuteronomy ends without us getting there yet. It ends by God speaking through Moses this second law. Deutero means two nomos, Deuteronomy, means law. It's the second law. It's the second time through, and now Moses is expounding on it. There's another verse at the end of Deuteronomy, another look-up verse, where God starts to summarize it, and Moses proclaims this to the people of God on the border of the promised land. Today, I've given you the choice, and this is me lining it up. These are the words of God straight out of the pages of Scripture, but I sorted them this way because there are two pathways here. Today I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Oh, that you would choose life, Moses says. Oh, that you would choose life. This is maybe, and if you've been reading the first five books of the Bible since January 1st, you probably have noted this. This is the first time Moses really starts to show a whole lot of emotion. You can almost feel it in that word, oh. Oh, that you would choose life. Because sometimes you do, rarely and a lot of times you don't as you rebel against this pathway, this word of life. The pathway over here, it looks so good, but it leads to death and curses. The pathway here may not look as good, but it's the road less traveled that leads to life and blessings. Oh, Moses says, because I love you. Oh, that you'd choose life. Oh, that you'd repent. Oh, that you'd change your direction in life, that you'd change your ways, because it would go better for you if you did. Not because God, in some sort of narcissistic way, needs you to love him more than anything else, but because that's the way the universe is set up, that God wants us to love him more than anything else because then it goes better for us. Then it leads to life and blessings. Oh, that you would choose life. 
The devil makes it very tempting to follow this pathway. He makes it look so good, and it's subtle. It's often not blatant. Any of you sports fans like me, when's the last time you watched a live sporting event on TV since sports gambling became legal in the state of Iowa without getting bombarded, and I use that word intentionally, by sports gambling ads and people dancing on the green next to the tee. And, it, and oh, just, just come and just, just, just stop being a baby and click the button and make a bet. And when you do, it's just rush of adrenaline, right? Wow, I'm alive. This is so awesome. This is so fun. This is so great. This is just, and not only that, on top of that, I could win money. To make it even more appealing, they say, here's a bazillion dollars. Here, we'll give you free money. Why do you think they do that? Why do we put worms on hooks to catch fish? To hook you, to get you in. Have you learned yet? Have you walked down this pathway far enough yet to realize the only one who wins in the world of gambling are the books, the casinos, the people who run the show. That's why states do this, so that they can raise tax revenue, so that they can, they can, they can get a tax on people who don't know how to do math. And they can figure out how to, how to get more out of us this way. Watch where these roads go. The devil's like, this is, man, adrenaline rushes. You're going to feel alive. It's going to be awesome. You'll probably get rich. You could quit your job and just gamble on sports all day long. And it'll be great. This is just one of millions of roads you can take. I don't know why I'm picking on that one today. I, I do. Because I'm the pastor who picks up the pieces and counsels families that are broken apart. Because they walk down this road. I have an uncle, Morgan, who lost his marriage. He lost his relationship with my cousins, his kids. He lost his very successful career in the marketplace. He lost his friendships. He lost it all because he walked down this road. Gambling's an addiction. It's a hook. It's got a really juicy, it's not a worm. Worms aren't very, it's got a Krispy Kreme donut on it. <laughs> he says, come on here, come and get it. It's really good for you. It's one of millions of different hooks that are out there for us. And they, they promise us life. And they promise us joy. And they, and they promise us that, that, that we're going to get this rush. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be filled with pleasure. Look closer. Look closer at which road really leads to life. I've given you the choice. Oh, Lutheran Church of Hope. Oh, that you would choose life. That you would find the better way to a deeper truth and a more abundant life. That's what we learned from the book of Deuteronomy. So you see, it isn't just some island of a book off by itself that just sort of drifts around and has no connection to us and no connection to Jesus or the New Testament. It has every sort of connection to it. And we see that in our New Testament readings this week too. But still a little bit more on Deuteronomy first. Three more verses that I think are worth noting from this book, from our readings this last week. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Let's read this one together. People do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I still have the proceeds translation in my head, sorry. So that verse is actually, right after that, Moses says, remember, look back. How God took care of us and he rained down manna from heaven. When we were hungry and we were grumbling and we were complaining. 
about not having anything to eat. So these aren't old donuts. I bought them on the way to church this morning. Because now, as the devil would have it, he planted a Krispy Kreme location within a par five of this church where I work every day. And I'm not overly, I'm conflicted about that is what I am. Because there's a hook here for me. And here's what I'm going to do. The first six people to come up here get a free Krispy Kreme donut after the sermon is over. I also have a free Bible. Choose wisely. Go back a screen. Go, go, go back one. Which, which pathway? Oh, that you would choose life! You say, what is this? Anti-sports gambling? You're killing me here. And then you go after my donuts that I eat while I'm gambling? My goodness, it's not safe to come to church anymore. Uh, that's just my job. Uh, oh, that you would choose life. It, it, that's the thing about it. Go, go ahead again to this screen. No, no, back one. Not ahead. There, yeah. Back with the donuts where I just want to hang out the rest of the day. People don't live by bread alone. Moses says to God's people, pleading with them to choose life. Rather, we live by every word that comes from that book. It's not that there's anything wrong with, well, sometimes there's a lot wrong with the donuts, right? And I'm not here endorsing, Krispy Kreme didn't say, hey, Pastor Mike, if we give you a little, you know, a little free donuts, you can want to preach about them. I mean, it hurts me to think that I would favor one over the other. There are other donut places in town. I mean, you know, Hertz is crazy good. And then I could dunk myself through this and get in all sorts of more trouble. And then there's the bakeries at grocery stores. And I'm not endorsing one over the other. I'm telling you, actually, there's not a whole lot wrong with that unless nutritionally there's something wrong with that. I'm telling you that when we live for that stuff, when we make it the best thing in life, it becomes an idol. Don't do that, God says through Moses to the people on the border of the promised land. There are millions of roads you can take from here, but only one leads to life. Live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, first and foremost. Put God first, and he's commanding this because he loves you. Second verse in this series of three from Deuteronomy chapter 10 a couple chapters later, you must fear the Lord your God and worship him alone. It probably sounds familiar. Third in this trilogy of verses, Deuteronomy 6, you must not put the Lord your God to the test, or you must not test the Lord your God. They sound familiar, don't they? They should if, if you've been reading in Luke. So let's take a closer look at Luke. And just, just with those verses in mind, we don't live by bread alone. We worship God alone. We don't put God to the test. The law of God, the second law, repeated and expounded by Moses to God's people on the border of the promised land, remind us of this. And so now we find ourselves right here and right now today. And we turn the page into the New Testament, and it's Luke for Lent around here. Just a quick overview, 30,000 foot on Luke, and we'll get more into it as we go uh, over the next 40 days. It's the longest gospel. It's filled with details. We just read the shortest gospel the Gospel of Mark, now we're turning the page to Luke, the longest gospel. It's artistic, it's brilliant. Luke is a physician and a historian. He's very precise, he's well-educated, you can tell. Luke is also a traveling scribe or secretary for Paul 
Uh, most historians believe, and there's hints of that in the scripture, it was written around 60 AD, so just a generation or so after Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead in a time when you can easily remember 30 years back to the big events. But in the same way that John Mark, who wrote Mark, was Peter's scribe, and it's an action-adventure kind of genre of literature. It's moving. It's the shortest gospel. Luke's the longest gospel. It's like a symphony. It's like a movement. There's harmonies and layers and beauty. And anybody who wants to take a closer look at it will truly be blessed at how rich God's word is and how deeply connected it is. Remember how Matthew connected the dots and started with the lineage? Well, Luke has one too in Luke chapter 3. Only his connects to say, here's Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, the Anointed One, the one you've been waiting for for centuries. But then there's also this connection because he's not just writing for the Israelites, the people that Moses was addressing on the border of the Promised Land, the descendants of Abraham and Sarah. He's writing for others. So, so Luke's ancestry chart goes back not just to King David the ruler it also goes back to Abraham the father of Israel and then it goes back even further to Adam to say it's not just the descendants of Abraham it's the Gentiles too the non-Jews it's everybody Luke's gospel is incredibly inclusive there's a sequel to Luke Paul is is uh, the is the one who's influencing Luke in the same way that Peter influenced Mark so Luke's going to write longer. He's going to cover more ground. He's going to tell us stories you're not going to read in any of the other Gospels. The parable of the prodigal son is only Luke. The parable of the good Samaritan is only Luke. Jesus' Christmas story in detail through the eyes of Mary is only Luke. And on and on it goes. If it weren't for Luke, we wouldn't have these stories. He's the, he, he's the great uh, writer of these symphonies, the, the creator, the, the one who puts them together. He writes a sequel to Luke. He just keeps writing, kind of like Paul never met a period in a sentence he liked. Luke just keeps writing. And so he goes, after Jesus rose from the dead, well, I got more to tell you. And so that's going to be the sequel. It's called the book of Acts. You'll read about that in, in a couple of months. But ultimately, Luke's theme is it's good news for outsiders. Here's the temptation the devil throws at religious people. It is to say Jesus is just for religious people. How convenient. <laughs> that he's just for, you know, people who come to church or read their Bible or pray prayers or usher or, 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 or do things, you know, teach Sunday school once in a while. That's who Jesus is for, and he is. But then they go on to say Jesus is for the righteous. And I would put in parentheses over here sometimes self-righteous. The people who say I'm right and everybody else is wrong which was a big problem in Luke's day, which is why he's emphasizing this theme because he's pulling that out of Jesus' teaching and out of what Jesus did and the example Jesus set and who Jesus spent time with. Too bad today we can't relate to that, to people who think being right means I can dismiss everybody else who is wrong from my life and can completely cut them off and say that they don't belong to even believe, breathe the same oxygen I do on, this, on the, the face of this earth. Or maybe we can. It's for the people who have status in life, the, the rich and the rulers and the people who've made it. And if we aren't careful, here's the best hook the devil gives us. This is what you should live for. Being religious, being moral, right, getting rich, and having power at work or at school with popularity and your social circles you hang out in as kids or adults. 
It's having status. It's getting promotions. It's, it's getting more stuff and more money so you can get more stuff. It's being right and telling everybody else they're wrong because they listen to the wrong cable news channel or watch it. It's making sure that's really the most important thing. And the devil then takes it further and says, that's what religious people should be focused on. Let's reduce Christianity the hook comes into a whole thing about right and wrong. We're right, those of us in the building today, and everybody else is wrong out there. But Luke comes along, and he makes this very clear. He tells a story about Jesus right away in our reading this week, Luke chapter 4. Jesus, after he's tempted by the devil in the wilderness, knows the temptations. First stop, hometown synagogue in Nazareth where Jesus grew up and everybody saw him grow up. He's the scripture reader for the day. He chooses the scroll and it's no accident that he chooses a passage from Isaiah, a prophecy about the Messiah to come that the people of God had been waiting for for over seven centuries to be fulfilled. To paraphrase what Jesus read that day, unrolling the scroll, he says, here's the reading of God's word today. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The prophet Isaiah proclaims the word of God. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to come and bring good news, which is the actual kind of literal definition of the word gospel, to bring good news to the poor. Whoa, they're outside the circle, aren't they? They're not having a good life. To open the eyes of the blind, Jesus goes on to say. You mean like sick people and people who aren't strong, fit? The people who are in the circle? Yeah, that's who I'm here for. To set the captives, the, the prisoners free. To bring good news and freedom to those who are oppressed. I could add, to bring good news and the gospel to those who are suffering, and maybe most importantly, as we read through the rest of Luke's gospel, to bring this gospel, this good news to those who are sinners. The biggest hook the devil throws at the church these days is to say, you're not a sinner. What you do isn't wrong. Just, just talk God out of your sin. Because a lot of people see it the way you want to see it or do what you want to do. There's nothing wrong with your behavior. There's nothing wrong with the way you treat people. There's nothing wrong with the way you look down at others. There, there's nothing wrong with, 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 with where you put the lines of morality and what's right and what's wrong. God doesn't get to vote on that. You get to vote on that. Our society gets to vote on that. We get to tell the creator what he created. We get to tell him who we are. We get to tell him what he set up here. Of course, this doesn't, it's not logical. And it's not. It's also not life-giving. So the hook the devil gets into us, the big temptation is to say that we're without sin. But then the Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And if we reduce Christianity to just being religious and right and having status... What do we really have? It's not Christianity. But the temptation is to say, I wish the Christians I hung out with would talk more about right and wrong. You know, behavior, morality. That's the most important stuff we can talk about, is fixing people, changing the way they live, 
Fixing their behaviors, fixing their their worldviews, fixing their attitudes, fixing the way they see things. And you can find lots of churches all over this country and all around the world that will cater to that. This is right, this is wrong, and there could be nothing more important for us to talk about because the whole future of the world is at stake. They're right about that last part. We're on the border of the promised land and we may not get there from here. Because there are tens of millions of roads we can take. But only one leads to life. And it isn't focusing on our behavior and how religious we are and how right we are and how much status we have. But look around this world. Look into your own heart and your mind. Isn't that what we believe? Let me put it, isn't that how we live for these things? And we want to drag Jesus along for the ride? So Luke tells this story. Jesus says, I come to bring good news to the poor, to the blind, to the prisoners, to the oppressed. And throughout the rest of his gospel, I come to bring good news, the gospel to those who are sinful and suffering and sick. And on and on the list goes. You know, the people who are outside are now inside, which of course means the people who were inside are now outside. Whoa. Now you're starting to sense just how radical Jesus is. And the Gospels are and what Christianity is really all about. It certainly isn't about this stuff in the blue. But there's another temptation over on this side. And I see this too. Yeah, those people. They're the worst. They're terrible. We're up here. We're the sin. We're, We're the people who know. We hate them. And you just did the same thing. You just put a a circle of exclusion around these folks. And here's maybe one of the most wonderful surprises about Luke's gospel, especially if you're sitting there and thinking, I walked into church today thinking I'm saved, and now I don't know. (laughs) Well, it all depends. What's in your heart? What do you put your trust in? Yourself? Your behavior? Religiosity? That Jesus, according to Luke's gospel, continues to pursue the religious people, like the people in the synagogue in Nazareth who want to kill him after he does the Bible reading for the day. The Pharisees who are so self-righteous, they just reek of it. Uh, Rich people like Zacchaeus, the corrupt tax collector. Only in Luke will you read about Zacchaeus. Luke wants to make sure that you realize Jesus isn't just for the people he announces on day one of his ministry in the the local synagogue. He's for the religious. He's for the self-righteous. He's not for what they're doing. He's going to change them. But he's going to pursue the religious and the self-righteous and the rich and and the rulers like the, the Roman centurion who he heals a loved one of that Roman centurion, a person of great status and power and position. And on and on it goes. And so as you read through Luke's gospel, you start to realize the circle of inclusion for Jesus, who he wants to be in the kingdom of God, is way bigger than the very convenient circles we like to set up for ourselves. It's it's us or it's us, depending on where you're more comfortable. No, it's, it's us. You say, that looks a whole lot like universalism. It's not. There's still a very easy way that the devil gets us out of the circle. And he says, put your trust in idols. Live for other things. Lose lose your faith. Wander away from me. Have have false gods with a small g. Don't believe that you're going to be saved by Jesus, but by your behavior or your lack of behavior. 
Please also note this. When Jesus comes after sinners, and Luke's gospel is going to tell lots of stories about how Jesus hangs out with sinners, it's the sinners who change, not him. And so it should be for us too. When we go out and hang out with sinners, it doesn't mean we become like them. It means we announce the good news to them and share a a better example for them and try to. But here's the other humbling part about that. When it comes to who the sinner is, I want you to look to your right real quick, very casually. Don't let them notice you're doing it. It's them. Now look over to your left. That's the sinner. Now, Now look up here. It's me. Now, if you would metaphorically look in a mirror. It's you. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us, but if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know how you get out of the circle? Saying I'm not a sinner. Saying I don't need grace. I don't need the cross and God won't give it to you. I don't need the sacrifice. I don't need the forgiveness. I've talked God out of my sin. I've talked the world out of it too. I don't need God to come and save me because I've just declared that I'm saved because of my behavior, because of my righteousness, because of, because of my poverty, because of my suffering, because of whatever it might be. No, it's only because of Jesus. There are tens of millions of pathways we can take on the border of the promised land, but only one leads to life, and his name is Jesus. Watch this. The story right before this in Luke chapter 4 Jesus goes out into the wilderness and he fasts. He doesn't eat anything for 40 days. So here comes the devil. He knows where we're weak. And he wants more than anything. If you're the devil, what do you want to do more than anything else in Jesus' day? You want to get him off his pathway. More than anything else, you want to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Because if he goes to the cross, all these people can be in. If he doesn't go to the cross, nobody's in. Because we're all sinners. Because we're all going to have the sin that's going to keep us apart from God. So Christianity, in its most radical and, and most literal definition, at the heart of Christianity is this good news that God's coming for the sinners. This is not a hangout for perfect people, Lutheran Church of Hope. This is a, this is a hospital for sinners. And Jesus wants to change us. He wants to convert us. He wants to transform us. He doesn't want to leave us in our sin because that pathway leads to death and to burdens and to curses. He wants to put us on a new pathway that leads to life and to blessings. That's what Deuteronomy is all about. That's what Christianity is all about. Let Jesus be who Jesus is. Let him be your savior. Instead of trying to talk him out of your sin, confess it. Bring it all. The biblical definition of sin, have you, have you figured this out yet as you've been reading? It's way bigger than the world thinks. The world's like, don't you dare call me a sinner. Well, I am. And so are you. And so is every single one of us. That's not the game. The truth that sets us free is we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And if we confess our sins, 1 John 1 says, God's word, God's life-giving word that's even better than the donuts. 
we confess our sins, God's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the devil comes to Jesus. You must be famished. You must be starving. Remember the manna from heaven. Why don't you take these stones and turn them to a loaf of bread? You know, <laughs> nourish yourself. Take care of your needs. Come on, Jesus. I just need to keep you from going to the cross. Because you're opening the door to the kingdom of heaven to way too many people. Through the, the devil can see it. I need to get you off this pathway. If you're the son of God, tell the stone to become a loaf of bread. Start following my lead. No, Jesus says, the scriptures say, because I read Deuteronomy. I read it, I learned it, and now I'm going to live it, devil. People do not live by bread alone. That's a swing and a miss for the devil, but he's got two more swings. So he goes big on the second one, and he says, I give you everything, Jesus. I'll give you the whole world if you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, no, I know the word of God. I'm fluent in scripture. And the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Notice how Jesus is resisting the temptations with the word of God. Read it, learn it, live it. The devil has one more swing, so he takes Jesus to the top of the temple. He says, if you're the son of God, jump off. It'll be a spectacle. Then everybody will know you're God. Isn't that what you want? Not if you tell me. The scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Where did Jesus get that? He got it from our Old Testament readings this week. And this story from Luke 4 is in our New Testament readings this week. Funny how that all works, isn't it? So how do we resist temptation? Number one, start with God. Look back. Remember who you are. You're loved by God. The God who made you loves you. The God who made you loves you. Listen to me. Oh, that you would listen and love the Shema of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. This key verse that unlocks the door for God's people on the border of the promised land. But they might not get there. Let me unlock the door for you. The, the Shema, or some people call it Shema. And if, they, if you say Shema to them and they say, um, actually it's Shema, tell them it's a dead language and they don't know that. And tell them to get off their self-righteous horse because they're kind of hanging out down here now. A little more Jesus, a little less us. Let me rephrase that. Christianity these days could use a lot more Jesus and a lot less us. A whole lot more about where we find our hope. We aren't Lutheran Church of hope in us. We are Lutheran Church of hope in the one who went to a cross to die for our sins. And we fill up with that act of love. Have you figured out yet that as you read through the Bible, there are stories. There's so many of us. I'm inclined this way. I started college a math major. I like things to fit. I like, them to, I like the ledger to balance. I like everything to calculate out. Everything fits in a file. There's a place for everything and everything in its place, right? But our relationship with God, as it's revealed through Scripture, it's not a philosophy. It's not even a theology, first and foremost. Do you know what it is? Have you caught this yet? It's stories. It's stories about who God is and therefore who we are and whose we are. And if you didn't get it this time, it's more music and art than it is just sort of a deduced mathematical formula. You can find that. There's plenty to tickle your brain in Scripture. You can go all day long on that stuff. You know, have, have, have theological conversations. We have a meeting here every week amongst the pastors where we do that. The Pastor Mike podcast is basically that. We're going to give you things to think about. 
but we also hope it'll go from head to heart. And that's what stories do. That's what music does, right? The music you love, the art you love, the reason we go on vacations to see the glory of God's creation. So we can be inspired, so that we can be inspirited, inspired, filled up with God's spirit. The first verse of Luke 4, before Jesus is tempted, says, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled up with God, which means, above all else, he knew that he was loved by his heavenly Father in the mystery of the Trinity. He knew, filled with the Spirit. That's what Ephesians says. The Apostle Paul will write, we'll read about this later, he says, I want you to know, I want you to be filled up with God's spirit, which means, above all else, you will know just how deep and how wide and how high and how long the depth and breadth of God's love is for you. Do you? It's not just look up so that you can love God with everything you've got. It's look up, the Bible says. And Luke reveals this, and the whole New Testament reveals this. Look up so that you can be reminded how much this God loves you. God loves you. Oh, that you would choose life. Oh, that you would choose this love because it would change everything in a way that just saying, you know, I'm going to change my behavior. Never will. It all starts with Jesus, the power, the source. Be filled with his spirit. None other temptation is to think that the best gifts of the spirit are the miraculous gifts, the healing gifts, the the, the miracle gifts, the, the, the gifts that a lot of people in this church have. There's a man in our church family after the service last night. He says, you know how you've been praying for my health? Because I've got um, kidney failure, stage four. I said, yeah. And honestly, shows my heart. I was expecting him to say the news. I went to the doctor this week. He said, I was like, oh, what did he say? Stage four. He said, I can't explain this. I have never, ever seen this before. You're normal. You're completely normal. People have been praying for him in this church. And the doctor says, the only way I can explain this is miracle. The doctor's words. I'm telling you, this stuff happens. Miracles happen. But I'm also telling you this. More important than that, those miracle gifts are all listed in 1 Corinthians 12. Turn the page to 1 Corinthians 13, and Paul says, God's word says, let me show you a better way to live, something to strive for even more. Live for faith in Jesus, hope that he gives, and the love that's poured down from heaven through his death and resurrection. And the greatest of these is love. To be filled by the Spirit more than having miracle gifts even is to know that you know that you are loved by the God who made you. Secondly, to resist temptation after you know and remember who you are and how much God loves you and that God is in your corner is to do this whole Holy Bible thing. Read it, learn it, and live it. That's what Jesus did. And it helped him resist. He was fluent in Scripture. He's like, I know what this is. You're putting God to the test. I know what this is. You want me to worship you. The Bible won't let me. God's word gives me a boundary there that's for my benefit. You want me to turn these stones to bread? I, I know what this is. You're trying me to get me to go down your pathway, devil. I won't do it. And the Bible reminds me not to do it. That I don't live by Krispy Kremes alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. First and foremost. Finally, third, follow the example of Jesus. And Luke's gospel is filled with examples of that you'll be reading about as you go. Follow his lead. Be the body of Christ. There's a movie that came out over 10 years ago that I'll close with and I think illustrates 
in a very real-world kind of way, the temptations we face. Not, not that this will be exactly you and precisely your situation. This movie is a movie my wife loved and I forgot, to be honest. <laughs> it's called The Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> See why I forgot? But I'm preaching on Jesus being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. I'm like, well, this might work. And sure enough, there's a scene. It, there's this character played by Anne Hathaway. She plays the character of Andy or Andrea. And she's a graduate of Northwestern University, super smart, wants to be a very serious journalist. She graduated from the School of Journalism there, prestigious university. She can't get a job coming out of college, and so she ends up working as the assistant for Miranda, played by Meryl Streep. Too bad they couldn't get any good actors in this movie. <laughs> Meryl Streep actually was nominated for an Academy Award for this, this work in this movie because she plays the devil so well in this movie. She's the devil who wears Prada. And she's got Andy hooked because Andy thought that she was supposed to be created by God to be a serious journalist, but she ends up getting a job working as Miranda's assistant for the fashion magazine that she leads. There's nothing evil or wrong about fashion or working for a fashion magazine until you make it your idol, which is what Miranda the Meryl Streep character did. She made it her religion. She made it her source of life. And she brought Andy in and converted her. So she started to live that way too. Well, Andy has a co-worker named Emily, and they have a lot of drama throughout the movie. They get along, then they don't, then they do, then they don't. And Emily ends up in the hospital. She gets hit by a car. Andy goes in to visit her, and Emily lets her have it. She, Emily's like Moses. Oh, that you would choose life, Andy. If you would just please look back and remember who you are. If you would just look up and know, if you realize it's supposed to be me, not you, who's getting all this stuff from Miranda, because I actually like this stuff, and you don't. This is who I am. It's not who you are. You've sold your soul, she actually says. And then that leads, I, I, I edit way ahead to one of the closing scenes where Anne Hathaway's character, Andy, finds herself in the backseat of a limo, because she's rich, Miranda is. She's powerful, and she's a ruler of the Meryl Streep character, her boss, Miranda. And that's when Andy Jesus has this very real come-to-Jesus moment that I think a lot of us need to have in one way or another. There are tens of millions of different roads we could take from this day forward. Only one leads to life, and his name is Jesus. Do you know what really just gets me about this whole thing is that you know you're the one who said that you don't really care about this stuff and you don't really care about fashion you, know, you just want to be a journalist and what a part of bollocks emily i know you're mad i don't blame you face it andy you sold your soul the day you put on that first pair of jimmy chews i saw it and do you know what really just kills me about this whole thing it's the clothes that you're gonna get i mean you don't deserve them you eat carbs but I was very, very impressed by how intently you tried to warn me. I never thought I would say this, Andre. But I really... I see a great deal of myself in you. But what if this isn't what I want? I mean, what if I don't want to live the way you live? Oh, don't be ridiculous, Andrea. Everybody wants this. Everybody wants to be us. Mm -hmm.
tens of millions of roads and pathways we can take from here. One leads to life, and that does not mean that you can't eat Krispy Kremes, and you can't pursue your career, and you can't pour into it. Please just make sure it's God's dream for you and not the dream you want God to bless. Please make sure it's who God has made you to be and not who the world tells you you're supposed to be. Please make sure it's based on the one trustworthy pathway, the better way, the deeper truth that leads to the more abundant life. Free Krispy Kremes for the first six. Free Bible for the first one, too. Amen? Let's stand up and together we'll sing out this song of praise to God. <laughs>